Hello and welcome to the First Time Founders Podcast, the show where we talk about how to start a business from nothing and grow it into something meaningful. I'm Rob Lydiard. I was the co-founder CEO of a software business called Yapster, which was acquired in December 2022. I'm now a professional implementer of the Entrepreneurial Operating System, or EOS, which means I work with entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial leadership teams to hit their growth aspirations, start hitting numbers, aligning around a vision, executing with more discipline and accountability, and frankly, being a little bit less chaotic and more healthy as a team, because we can be a little bit crazy in startup world. That's my day job, but in my spare time, I love to speak to other entrepreneurs, entrepreneurial people, and business people working with or for entrepreneurs about the first time founder journey and the mistakes that so many of us make along the way, so that hopefully we can help others coming along into the entrepreneurial ecosystem, maybe get to where they're trying to get to just a little bit faster, and maybe with just a little bit less frustration and pain. Today, my guest is Andrew Lynch. Andrew's a really well-known personality in the, um, the small business online community of Twitter, now X. Um, Andrew's also the, the founder, the host of an SMB UK Slack community where I've met some amazing UK small business owners and investors. He's a great guy. And most recently, a couple of weeks ago, he was uh, credited by a chap called The Secret CFO, another ex-personality for um, for a visual illustration of what a good, capable finance function looks like, both for startups and at scale, kind of five-level pyramid, which he's kindly agreed to come on to because, you know, he's my famous friend, come on to this podcast to talk us through so that first-time founders can begin to understand what a great finance function looks like, where they are maybe on that curve, and maybe some of the actions that they can take to get to a better place with a more sophisticated finance function to help them deliver whatever their vision for their business may be. I think you're going to get a lot of value from the episode. So without further ado, my conversation with Andrew Lynch. My famous friend, Andrew Lynch, welcome to the First Time Founders podcast, mate. Thank you for doing this. Thank you, mate. I'm uh, excited to get started. Looking forward to it. <laughs> so when I say famous, of course, I mean you were credited by name with the diagram in the Secret CFO's weekend newsletter a couple of week weekends ago with your, your pyramid of what an elite finance function looks like. It was a sort of visual diagram. I'll, I'll include a link in the show notes. For the uninitiated, would you mind giving people a sense of who you are and how you came to be an authority on, uh, on what great SMB finance looks like, mate? Yeah, happy to. So, um, like I say, I'm Andrew. Uh, I, I guess, was uh, an FD and SME here in Nottingham uh, for a couple of years until I uh, recently leapt to join um, a sort of fast growth PE-backed company in uh, an FP&A role, financial planning and analysis. So, yeah, my career, um, I'm sort of, what, 35 now? So, my sort of 13-ish years of my career has been almost all finance. So, you know, joined a a grad scheme on a finance role and started learning about debits and credits and journals and balance sheet recs and all that exciting stuff. Um, did that for sort of three years, moved to a startup in the US for a year um, in more of an ops role, moved back to the UK, um, worked at one SMB in a sort of accounting role and then head of finance, then a big Fortune 500 public company in a different finance role, then an SME in a different finance role, and now finally a, a, what is currently an SME and probably won't be in a couple of years' time. Uh, in a different finance role. So yeah, I've sort of um, done you know a decade plus in in finance roles from right junior roles, doing the balance sheet recs and posting journals and figuring out what a trial balance is up to you know FD leading a company um, and you know 
designing what the finance control environment looks like and the budgeting and the reporting and the accounting and dealing with auditors and dealing with tax calcs. Um, so yeah, it's given me a sort of, you know, decade of experience across three person startups doing hundred K in revenue in a year to I'd say 25 billion a year, fortune 500 company and a couple of stops in between. So along that way, I guess I've um, accumulated some useful knowledge about finance. I don't profess to be an expert in everything. Um, you know, if I ever need a, tax calculation or some VAT advice like there are people I go to because there are people who are a lot more knowledgeable about that than me um but I guess a few years ago uh, and this is obviously how we got connected um but I started sharing some of this on um what was then Twitter this is now X um although I still call it Twitter um, and you know slowly but surely over time amassed um a, a small a modest but um you know healthy following um just talking about you know this is what finance looks like in an sme this is what i've seen from my career this is good this is bad um look at this company pnl isn't this interesting and you know for whatever reason people want to listen to it um my experience following you has been that you um and it makes sense when you give that kind of whistle stop tour of your career you've seen enough of good to be authority on that and also enough of crap to be an authority on that too which is sort of perfect for for smb commentary given that we do see the good the bad and the ugly so would you if you're happy for the purposes of this conversation i would love it if we could explain what your finance pyramid kind of looks like we can sort of verbally talk to it and then we'll almost talk through the layers so that first-time founders listening can kind of hopefully by the end of it can picture what a finance function should look like and hopefully have some ability to roughly diagnose where they are on the good to crap continuum at each kind of at each level does that work for you yeah happy to um so I guess I'll I'll start by explaining what the pyramid looks like for um for people that aren't watching this back, um, and again I, I I'll take some credit for this because I guess I designed this particular version that Secret CFO picked up, but I th- I'm fairly sure I adapted this from um an old uh, head of finance that I used to work for um back in my early days, and it always kind of stuck with me as a good way of um picturing. It's not quite the sort of value chain of finance, but it's not a million miles away. But it's more um, the the reason it is a pyramid is because you need to make sure like the level below it is nailed down before you move up to the next level. Um, so if you think about you know big blue pyramid with five layers. So starting at the mm-hmm. bottom, we've got transaction processing. Above that, what I call reporting. Above that, budgeting and forecasting above that analysis and insight and then above that what i call strategy so you've got five layers from one to five um so go through them kind of each in turn so first and foremost the the bottom layer of the pyramid is what we call transaction processing this is um the most boring the most (laughs) likely to get um you know swept up by ai in the future um and i don't want people to think that because it's the bottom of the pyramid it's where you should spend the most time uh, it merely represents the fact that like to do anything else interesting, you have to get transaction processing right first. And when I say transaction processing, the things that should be coming to mind are, um, is my payroll run on time and are all my staff getting paid the right amount on the right payday without any cock-ups either from me or from my payroll supplier, double payment, oh, bugger, I missed off that new starter, forgot to pay them, oh, missed off someone's expenses, all that kind of stuff. Are you getting your payroll right? Um you're paying your expenses, all that kind of stuff. Because first and foremost, if you get that wrong, either you know you'll stick an extra zero on the end of someone's paying, and you'll never see him again. Or um, you know, I don't know about you, Rob, but um, I you know I like what I do. I like my job, 
I wouldn't do if I didn't get paid at the end of the month. So make sure your payroll's right. Your team, you know, turn up to work every month. Um, it's the one bit of finance where literally everyone in your business really, really cares whether it's right or not. And they will immediately tell you if it's not. So you've got to get that nailed on. And and what we'll do is we'll we'll go sort of go through it and then I'll probably come back and we'll share some mutual horror stories of, yes. of, of different misdemeanors at different levels because I think most startups generally will get their people paid roughly, like right enough for people not to all leave. But yep. it's going to be really fun when we come back to this and talk about how dangerous being quote average can be at each of these levels where it's not yeah, so okay. bad that an, that an unsophisticated founder would notice. Yep. But yeah, it's bad enough to really damage their business. Does that make Definitely. sense? So we yeah. won't dwell on that now, but I think we could, that's probably where we're going to spend most of our time with each layer, right? Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, transaction processing, you've got, um, firstly, are, are all my staff getting paid on time and are they getting paid correctly? Um, similarly, again, depending on your business model, this may or may not be particularly important, but are you getting all your suppliers paid on time-ish or close enough that they're not putting you on stop and um, you know ceasing to do business with you? Again, if you're, um, say, a, a SaaS business where the vast majority of your um, cost is your own people, slightly less important, although you might still have, you know, a, a marketing agency or a fractional CFO or um, an AWS bill that you need to pay. And if you're not paying it, you're going to get cut off. And for a lot of those services, getting cut off might not matter too much. If it's something like your hosting bill, it might be absolutely critical to the success or failure of the business. So your suppliers getting paid on time or on time enough that it's not causing a, an issue for the business. Um, you're getting cash in from your customers, particularly if you are, um, you know, selling on credit terms. So if you're selling on, you know, net 30 terms, uh, are your customers paying those invoices and are they paying them on time? And again, if they're not, it doesn't take very long for that to go wrong, such that you end up either going out of business or again, we'll come back to a horror story, but as I've um, heard, you know, an MD or a CEO, kind of on their knees in a customer's meeting room begging for an invoice to be paid early because payroll's going out in two days and if we don't get your invoice paid, we're going bust. Um, Dude, I, I've, seen, I've seen some horror stories in VC-backed companies with not actually billing and collecting and, until and, until it matters. And it's insane. Then it's too late. So yeah, we'll definitely come back and dwell on that. So what's, um, the, what's the next level? So next level is uh, reporting. So again, if you're um, getting your payroll done, you're getting um, staff and suppliers paid on time, uh, you're collecting cash in and ultimately obviously you need to be inputting stuff into your uh, accounting system or your bookkeeping system or something and assuming all of that's done correctly you can then do reporting so you can you know you can produce a PL, you can produce a balance sheet you can produce a cash flow statement you can file your vat returns you can do your stat accounts and your corporation tax but again that's only possible if you are correctly inputting stuff into your um, accounting system or your bookkeeping software, like Zero, Dynamics, NetSuite, you know, there's 50,000 different versions of it, but it's still like garbage in, garbage out. Like if you're not putting stuff into that system correctly, or at least correctly enough, then your P&L won't make any sense, or you'll file a VAT return wrong, or your corporation tax will be late, or it just costs you a ton because you need to end up paying, you know, a third-party accounting company or bookkeepers to to fix all that for you. Um, so you can only really get an accurate picture of your PL if you're putting the transactions in right and you're capturing them. And this is where things like um, you know, your your scorecard and your weekly L10 in the kind of EOS framework comes in. It'd be really nice to be reporting that every single month on time. But to do that, you know, you need to make sure people are capturing that data correctly somewhere. Um, 
without the good data, you can't do the reporting. Without the reporting, you can't actually do anything about it. So that's why that reporting sits on top of transaction processing. And then next level up after reporting, you've got budgeting and forecasting. Um, So let's say, you know, you've been doing this for um, 18 months or so. Now you've got a pretty accurate picture of what your monthly P&L looks like. Um, thus, you can start to forecast what's it going to look like in the future. So if I'm looking at, you know, revenue by month and it's going up 5% like clockwork month over month over month, I've probably got a pretty good idea if I forecast that out till the end of the year, what does it look like if it keeps going up 5% a month? Um, revenue's been growing while our, um, you know, people costs have been steady because we're a software company, so we're fixed at, you know, 15 people, but we're just signing more and more um, customers and it's adding to our MRR. Great. Again, dead easy to forecast. What what happens if we keep growing revenue five percent a month and people costs stay the same, and you know the lease goes up next month? So whacking that extra office cost. Great. Now I've got quite a good forecast of what my um what my P and L, what my financials are going to look like over the next six, twelve, eighteen months. Um, and equally as importantly, kind of three or four months from now, I can check did that performance happen in line with what I was forecasting? So again, because I've got the good reporting, I can do the forecasting. Once you're in the forecast, you can report against the forecast and say, you know, did we hit that 5% month-on-month revenue growth that I'd forecast? If so, great. If not, why? Or even if so, why? And could we have got 10% a month revenue growth or 50% a month revenue growth if we'd done something differently? So again, you need that transaction processing leads to reporting, leads to budgeting and forecasting. Got it. Um, then next up again is the um, analysis and what I call analysis and insight, and it's really I guess um, builds off what I was just saying there. So um, you know we'd forecast that revenue would continue to grow at five percent month over month because that's what it had been doing in the past, um, and actually it grew at ten percent a year. Uh, sorry, ten percent like month over month. And you go well, well, why was that? Was that uh, we changed the pricing? Was that we have uh, had you know seat expansion in particular customers that are already existing is it because churn's gone down um you know which of these factors is causing revenue to go up and do we need to do anything about that or is there anywhere we should be putting you know more or less of our time money energy um you know to change that growth trajectory so you can kind of dig into um you know not just how is the business performing but why and then what do we do about it Got it. Um, so that's the kind of uh, analysis and insight piece. Um, and then ultimately the kind of strategy piece. Um, so again, on top of that, let's keep using the revenue growth as an example. And, uh, you know, I've seen my revenues grown 5% month on month. I've seen that in my reporting. I forecast that it will continue to do so. Actually, it's slowed and it's only going up 1% month over month. Okay, I'll figure it out because that's... Um, because you know we've exhausted all the customers in this particular segment. Now we need to expand into this other segment. Well, we don't really have the capability to do that yet. So either um, you know to continue on that revenue trajectory, we might need to buy a competitor in that vertical. We might need to um, invest in you know a new sales and marketing team or a new value proposition to specifically target that customer segment. We might need to redesign our uh, product or feature set to match what that new target market needs. All of these are kind of um, strategic, big business decisions that like sit with you know the board or the exec team or ultimately usually the founder um, to make that kind of call. Again, the the financial um, side of that, having done all that analysis and insight, that forecasting, that reporting, gives you the confidence in those numbers to say, okay, well, let's say we acquired a competitor. 
what would we have to pay? How much would it cost to integrate them? What does the combined P&L of that organization look like if we were to do that? Um, would we have enough money to service the debt that we might need to take out in any acquisition? Would I need to raise equity financing to do it? If so, you know, cool, I've got a couple of years of good financials here and a solid business case, um, and I can demonstrate why that's an important thing or why that's a good thing to do. Um, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, you know, putting in place like a long-term forecast for what your P&L might look like in five years if, you know, we acquire this competitor and this competitor, build out these functions, take this equity investment, and then we exit in 10 years, you know, look at what these numbers look like. Um, again, all of that is only possible if you've done all the stuff below. But you can see the journey from, you know, bloody hell, I'm not even getting my payroll right, or I've forgotten <laughs> about these nine invoices that I was supposed to input to, long-term strategic plan, uh, you know, NPV calcs on investment decisions, deciding to do M&A activity. There's a big gulf in between those and you have to kind of step your way up to those and up the levels of that pyramid. It sounds so simple when you describe it like that, but like real talk, what percentage of accountants would you say working in SMV startup land are just not that good like i i bet the average sort of a bit like the average non-technical founder like meets someone that can just do the most rudimentary coding and assumes they're the cleverest person in the world and could yeah. easily like mix it with silicon valley's very best yeah. i think a lot of founders particularly like business sort of sales oriented founders yep. do the exact same thing with anyone that's a quote accountant yep. <laughs> i mean you don't need to guess how what percentage of crap but like just like anecdotally like do you, is it a minefield like is, is it really dangerous trying to hire accountants without being thoughtful a little bit and and i would say um you know I, i'd have the same problem if i tried to hire a developer you know like i know how much i know which is probably five percent less than that 1% of the total, you know, available knowledge in that field. <laughs> so the the level to which I can make a good hiring decision, and even if I do manage to make a good hiring decision, like, can I manage them or can I set objectives? Like, it's just really hard. Um, yeah, it's it hard is. without, at the very least, knowing, like, the, the kind of big picture context of what does good look like at each of those levels and how do we ascend and move up the levels and ultimately kind of where do I want to get to? So if you don't have that kind of big picture view, like you say, it would be like me... Um, Okay, I'm going to end up sharing my ignorance here, but say I'm trying to build out my um, software engineering function and I, in an interview, can test if someone knows, you know, an, an if loop or a when or a while loop and can they write an if statement? Can they get something to print out to the console? Uh, and if they can, I'll go, great, this person knows how to code, like bring them in. But <laughs> that person might know absolutely nothing about like software architecture or deploying to AWS or, you know, buying versus build decisions when you're looking at internal tooling like that might be way beyond that person's level but it's also way beyond my level so i don't really know how to assess it and i don't even know what good looks like for a kind of leader of that function if you know what i mean so it's just really it's just hard it is hard I, I one of the things that worked for me eventually was a combination of discovering eos and then also just trying all the wrong ways of everything yeah, sure. was the kind of charlie munger inversion technique you know, it's like, you're like, what would a really bad accountant or a really bad CTO look like? What are some of the things that they would likely do that would be signals for that? Yeah, so yeah. Sh should we start with that then? I mean, what's the most fun to start a strategy or to start a transaction processing? Um, um, I mean, the most fun is always to start at the top of the pyramid and work down. <laughs> um, let's let's describe the most incapable, uh, like over-promoted CFO for a subscale B2B software company. Yeah. I mean, like... <laughs> I've seen instances in the past of someone who, um, you know, nominally has the title FD, 
uh, they are, you know, the finance director reporting into the managing director or, you know, CFO to CEO. Um, but in reality, they are at best a sort of financial controller. So they know how to do VAT returns and then how to do stat accounts and then how to do a corporation tax filing and then how to do bookkeeping. Um, and they might actually be very, very good at those things. Okay. But they don't have the you know, like strategic lens on things. So like far and away, the most for me, like the most important thing about the finance function to remember is that ultimately it is a support function. Like it's very easy for me to, you know, produce the monthly PL every like every month, obviously, um, and see that the numbers are going up and think that it's me that's making the numbers going up because I'm the one putting together the PL and the numbers keep getting better. Like, well, yeah, but in reality, like that's the the output of all the different things that the people in the business are doing and the PL is just there to keep score. But the sort of the monthly PL to me as the FD or the you know head of FPNA or the financial controller it shouldn't be a surprise. It should reflect what I knew was going to happen in the business because I'm already talking to sales. And I know they're, you know, in the final discussions with, um, you know, these three key prospects, and I know the pipeline looks healthy down here. I've already spoken to marketing and I know that they're planning a big um, PR event this month. Um, I've spoken to HR and I know employee turnover stepped up a little bit and we've got a couple of vacancies. So I'm expecting to see savings in our people costs against, you know, what we budgeted. I should know all those things are going to happen in February, like a month ago. Um, and so when it comes to like early March and I'm producing the Feb PL, I should already kind of know what it's going to look like because I'm you know, deeply integrated with the rest of the business. I'm supporting them. I'm partnering with them to a degree where I, I kind of know what's going to happen, if that makes sense. And, yeah, it does. It sounds like that's kind of the difference between good or capable and average, right? Because you, you said, you know, you've got a sort of a, a capable controller, but maybe that you just perhaps not quite where they need to be on analysis, insight, and yeah. strategy. Presumably, there are times where they're actually not where they need to be on strategy analysis and actually not a capable controller either. Right? Yep. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. How, how's a first time founder? Would I know that? Or is there any way to know that before your suppliers start complaining that they didn't get paid <laughs> and you start realizing that the cash isn't coming to the bank that you? It should be. This is if you're even monitoring the account properly, right. which a lot of VC-backed companies actually, or some of the founders in VC-backed companies don't. Sure. Um, um, do you have any views on that? I mean, I know I'm really trying to drag you to the most sort of like the sc- the scummiest part of the fi- the finance profession in startups, but I feel like that's if this starts if this podcast has any utility, I, f- I feel like it's covering some of these things that are glossed over elsewhere, yeah, and yet a weirdly disproportionate number of first time founders fall into these traps. <laughs> and um, so, there's a couple of things that come to mind. So, first and foremost, would be um, when you reach the point at which you you need to hire for this role full time, and again, whether you call it financial controller, whether you call it chief accountant, whether you call it CFO, whether you call it VP of finance, um, probably your first full-time hire into the finance function isn't going to be the first person who's ever done any finance work. Like early doors when it's just you or you and your co-founders, probably one of you is inputting a bunch of stuff into Zero or QuickBooks Online, or you've mm-hmm. got a bookkeeper that's doing it. Um, there's probably one or two of you that are you know, keying in payments on your online banking to actually pay your suppliers or to pay your payroll. Yeah. And so that obviously there does reach a point at which you need to delegate those duties and far and away the the most dangerous of those and the biggest risk area is um you know the keys to the castle it's giving someone the ability to make payments out of your bank account 
Um, so one way to control it is you don't delegate that to anyone for a while at least. So you might have a bookkeeper or a, um, uh, or a you know VP finance or financial controller who is in charge of um, you know doing all the bookkeeping, pulling the P and L and the balance sheet together. And then what they might do, for example, with payroll and supplier runs is um, most ERP systems and a lot of payroll systems will either integrate directly with your online banking or produce a, like a CSV file that you upload into your online banking. And most online banking allows you to separate the permission to upload the file from the permission to approve that payment file. And you should always, as, as much as humanly possible, keep those two um, duties separate unless they both sit with you, the founder, in which case, you know, presumably you're not going to steal money from your own company. Although, again, that does happen. Um. Okay, so that's really interesting. So actually, I mean, one of the things I definitely did many times across many functions, um, not just finance, was misunderstood the difference between abdicating and delegating. Yes. You know, and a lot of people that are have the type of personalities that start companies are not massively detail-oriented people, and they're, they're yep. also if not outright risk seeking, as you know, like they're, they're at least they have some risk blindness, generally sure. speaking. And so it's hugely tempting to abdicate because you so desperately don't want to do any job that requires you to really pay attention to right. a, like, on, at least on a repeating basis. Right. So I was really guilty. Of that It sounds like what you're saying is if you want to know if you've mishired in finance, you actually need to stay involved in the process in the simple bits that would show you that like, it's just not working in the way it's supposed to. Otherwise, how would you know that, things are yeah. logged incorrectly and not done. You wouldn't know, would you? Exactly. To, to, to a certain degree, and again, up to a, a growth point, um, you as the founder or the CEO or the MD should stay involved in that. Partly even, because, if you, even if you've got the money not to, right? Even if you've been given the investment to go hire somebody that in theory should be able to do all of this better than you ever could. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, you can hire that person and you know, may, again, you can decide on kind of your own um, risk tolerance to a certain degree, but you could do something like, um, let's take a, a really simple um, finance team structure. Say you've got a financial controller and working for them, you have a, a bookkeeper or an assistant accountant, account assistant, call them whatever you want. So it's probably the, the workflow for something like um, a supplier invoice coming in should be the accounts assistant puts that supplier invoice on the system the um, financial controller you know, notes that that needs paying and so sets up the payment. And then you as the founder or the CEO approve that payment on your online banking. So there is that, at that point, you've got three people involved in the payment of an invoice. Um, and it requires the coordination of all three to defraud the company. Because again, the, the most um, common fraud scenario and things like this is dummy invoice from a supplier that doesn't exist with an employee's or unemployees family members bank details on it so this person puts the invoice on the system someone else um or that person can approve the invoice and make sure it gets paid and someone else just you know approves the payment on the back end um either deliberately or um because they didn't spot it so you can put in place controls at different levels of that and one of the the easiest ones is that segregation of duties so that it's impossible for one person to take you know a supplier invoice all the way from here's a pdf attachment on an email to there's some money in someone else's bank account putting in place at least a couple of people in that process um reduces the risk obviously it doesn't eliminate it but it does reduce it um significantly 
Got it. And actually, in my experience, I mean, I, I actually do know people that have been defrauded, so it's good advice. I know even more people that have just been sitting on top of really negligently run finance functions yeah. in startups that they only realize later. And I would imagine some of those checks and balances at least give you a chance of spotting that type of nonsense going exactly. on. Andrew, in the startup world, at least in recent years, there's been such a pressure to grow fast that it's been really tempting for founders, particularly first-time founders, to just go out, go out and sign as many customers as they possibly can. They'll have a rudimentary CRM set up, but then they'll have pretty weak like product data config and CRM driving things like Xero in their accounting systems. What's the easiest way? Do, 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 is, is there a conventionally accepted easiest way for a startup to be good at understanding its own business from a transaction process reporting perspective? Because it is quite confusing, isn't it? If you come out of even like Deloitte or one of the big accounting practices and get swept into a startup, that doesn't mean you know how to set up the tooling, no, right? To, 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 for your little finance cockpit to make any sense whatsoever. Yeah. And if anything, like it's often the opposite. Um, because working at a big company, um, you see such a narrow part of, you know, even if you work directly in the finance function, for example, you see such a narrow part of that finance function. You know, you might have um, an accountant who's responsible for, you know, a tiny, tiny part of like fixed assets, accounting and depreciation. So they get really specific on that one technical area, but don't see, you know, anything else. Or you might have someone who's been a, you know, phenomenal, um, you know, management consultant and has advised his big Fortune 500s on strategic moves. But then, like you say, on day one of the startup, then sat with a laptop in Starbucks going out, you know, what's a P&L or what's a, you know, how do I how do I make sure my inventory on my new um, e-commerce store gets tracked accurately? Um, or, or, or like new users in a B2B SaaS is classic, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. It, 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 um, it's amazing the number of startups have no idea how many users they've got. Yeah, it's like... So some of this is just like difficult problems and some of it is the the problem of trying to integrate one system with another. To a certain degree, I've got a bit of sympathy in that um, sometimes you don't necessarily want to do all the work to make sure that my CRM speaks perfectly to my accounting system, to my payroll system, because actually all of those systems are going to change that much in the next 18, 24, 36 months as you go on that growth journey. Yeah, but It doesn't make sense to optimize them too, um, like too soon. What I would say is like there's so much software out there now from CRM point of view, from a um, you know bookkeeping and accounting, from a, a BI point of view, all of which have you know open API keys. So for a lot of integrating, say, a CRM with an HR system with a, an accounting system, it can often be as simple as copying an API key out of one system, going into the settings of the other system, paste it in there, click, and you know you're good to go. Um, I've seen some very good setups where, to a certain degree, it depends on which system you want to drive which other system. So, for example, if we take like um, Zero as a, an accounting system, for example, that has in it the ability to store a bunch of customer data, um, customer names, customer IDs, drive all the invoicing. Um, but you don't have to. You could use something else, um, you know, something like FreshBooks, or you could even use a completely different CRM. Or depending on what, like your billing software is, maybe you may be using something like Stripe um, to handle your, you know, recurring billing. You can just have Stripe be the like system of record for all your customer data. So all the customer IDs, names, numbers, contact details, emails, billing profiles, rates, set all that up in Stripe. And all you do is like Stripe pushes data to your accounting system that just says, you know, 
revenue for the month was X. Um, that's perfectly possible. You've really just got to make that call at some point and decide, okay, th- this is my system of record. This is what I'm using to drive it. And it's this system that pushes data to all the other systems. Um, so if we make a change in you know, this one, it will be replicated elsewhere. But that's the one we use, and that's the one I want my sales team to use, and that's the one I want um, you know, me as the founder to be looking at on a, a daily or a weekly basis to see how that sales activity is tracking. Like you can do the same thing with, um, you know, if you're setting up a new e-commerce store with Shopify, for example, like Shopify works great with zero, but you Shopify is the place where you're doing all the, you know, reporting and MI and uh, all the info on your customers and your transactions and your purchases. And all that does is like push just financial data to zero. So you zero is like the kind of system of record for the financials, but not necessarily for all the customer data. So, so again, I guess we're the recurring theme here is you can you can delegate but don't abdicate, right? Absolutely. Because so like, this this is quite often a sort of cross functional thing with your technical technical lead. I mean, if you're a technical founder, then brilliant, but you'll probably have a point of view on this. And I I suppose at that recruitment stage, given how important transaction processing and reporting is in the foundation of a solid finance function, I assume you're going to want to be having a conversation with the finance people you're bringing in, whether they're fraction or it's an employee about what their capabilities are and what their point of view is on how these things should come together to drive our reporting, our data capture, our reporting methodology at the beginning. Again, it just wasn't something I even thought about when we founded my software business in 2015, Yapster. I mean, yeah, yeah. we didn't, we didn't grow so quickly that it mattered. Actually, it was fairly straightforward to keep on top of, you know, our customers as they came in, they were typically long-term contracts, three-year contracts where we do, user-based billing but annually rather than in real time and, and right. so straightforward to keep on top of exactly. um, but i've seen other businesses where they've got the opportunity to price dynamically and i know that they haven't set up the infrastructure really to to support that right um, uh, and it and to a certain degree you can um you know you can borrow tips and tricks for hiring you know a finance lead as you would for any other function um or really hiring any other role which is firstly like is there someone who's been there and done that before? Okay, cool. That's probably a pretty good signal. Um, you know, if they have worked at a company that they have scaled from, you know, half a million a year in revenue to five or ten or fifty or whatever, you know, that's a big green flag. Um, and then secondly, um, what's the level of like detail and specificity they can talk about that kind of stuff? And again, but potentially even if they haven't been there and done that, but like could they sit in front of you and say, okay, Rob, I see see what you're doing here. I see what your business model is. My uh, recommended approach would be A, B, and C. I know that because this bit of software has this specific quirk that actually isn't that big a deal and will work quite well for you. It integrates really nicely with this other bit over here. Um, And when it pushes data to, you know, this third system, that integrates really nicely. You can pull this reporting and push it into this other app that I've used a lot. And, you know, if they can talk a lot about that level of detail about what they would do or what they plan, you know, in an interview setting or even over email or over a coffee or something again normally a normally a, a green flag whereas if someone's a little bit more vague or you know gives you an answer a bit like i just gave you like it should theoretically be possible to do this or you know it's really important to make sure that we're doing this this and this like that's a little bit of a not a red flag but a yellow flag so i was thinking like again this this goes for finance people just as much as it goes for really any other role um how much in the detail is that person comfortable to talk? And that, um, you know, hints at firstly how well they know their stuff and how closely they've been involved with that kind of stuff in the past. Because, like, if you've been through one of these kind of 
um, implementations or scale-ups or roll-ups, like you've got some battle scars and you know what you're talking about and you've been through the trenches and you've been sat in meetings with, um, you know, implementation consultants from this company and this company and you've had to figure out why this data field doesn't perfectly map to this one or, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you just, you kind of learn that through muscle memory. So you should be able to talk about that coherently, like in an interview setting. Um, yeah. The only other thing I'd say about hiring that finance person is, um when you come to do that for the first time and you're hiring that first full-time, um, you know, first FTE on your payroll, they're probably not the first finance person you've ever interacted with as a business. You will have probably had some kind of local accounting firm or audit firm kind of help you do your stat accounts or help you do a tax return or a VAT return or something. Um, just pay one of those guys um, to sit in on the interview and tackle the technical stuff. Uh, or if you've been working with, again, like a fractional CFO or something like that, um, get them involved in that recruitment process and get them to handle the um, the more technical side of it. You know, you can interview them from a sort of culture fit, job fit point of view and get them to handle that, um, you know, the technical assessment and then just, you know, see what they think afterwards. That's well worth paying for. I agree. I mean, anyone that follows you on X would know that you are a massive geek and you love systems <laughs> and you absolutely could have bored all of us endlessly with your sure. opinions on all sorts of systems and interactions and APIs. But I appreciate you just sticking to the summary level from the purposes of, of a podcast. Sure. And I think that the takeaway for uh, attention short first time founder sort of visionary types, again, if people were not paying full attention, <laughs> is you you need to do competency-based interviews, right? Yes. Like, and you have to, if you don't already have a strong point of view about how the data moves through your business and then drives accurate financials and reporting, you damn well better check the person you're bringing in has a strong point of view on that, that you can then verify. What you can't do is talk at a summary level where you don't know and it turns out they don't know either and then just hope that it's all magically going to turn into a coherent finance function with sort of solid bottom layers of your pyramid because yeah, that exactly. simply doesn't work. Exactly. If I think about like, uh, again, kind of mapping it to some of the EOS frameworks we have. So, so when you're hiring or um, looking for someone, you always talk about right person, right seat. You yeah. as the founder can evaluate, are they the right person? Are they a culture fit? Are they a values fit? Do I like them? Um, which sometimes important, sometimes not. Um, but, you know, are they a culture fit? Are they a right person? You can certainly do that. Right mm -hmm. seat. And in right seat, we mean, do they get it? Do they want it? And do they have the capability? you can probably assess whether they want it or not and how enthused they are about that role. You are much less likely to be able to assess accurately whether they want it and whether they have the capability to do that. So it's yeah. particularly those two strands. Whether I get it, yeah. Exactly. It's, it's those two strands that you're really looking for you know, external help from. So you can check if they're the right person. You need someone else to tell you if that's the right seat for them. Um, so that, that's kind of the, the broad way I'd be thinking about it. Yeah, that's 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 really helpful. Because I, I mean, how do you how do you know as a finance person like where you are on that maturity curve? I suppose it's just a self awareness and and being a part of of the finance community and sort of having a sense of what good looks like, right? Like being aware of what you don't know. Because I can imagine it could be quite. Um, intoxicating being the most financially literate in amongst <laughs> an illiterate bunch. Yeah, true. Um, and this is where like to a certain degree some of this is like um personal preference of that finance person like you know don't get me wrong i like being like um you know the big kid in a small you know the biggest person in a small town sort of thing or the biggest fish in a small <laughs> pond is what i was looking for um 
but you know, purely from a, like a personal career growth point of view, you also want to be surrounding yourself with like high quality, high caliber people. So there is a bit of that um, trade off, you know, in any one individual's career. I think um, if you're trying to assess your own company or you know your own finance function, for me as a finance leader, if I'm looking at this pyramid, um, there are certain things that I would address in here. For example, by um, you know, going back to like the US framework, some of these things I was looking at in an L10 um, on our weekly scorecard for the finance team. So if I think about the transaction processing, um, I had a metric for um, both my accounts payable and accounts receivable, which is what's the what's the percentage of your ledger that's like over 90 days old? Because um, I know- Oh, all that's the, interesting. Yeah, so I, like I know all these supplier invoices, the, the um, longest payment terms we have for suppliers is 60 days. So if it's still on the ledger and it's more than 90 days old, like what's going on? Um, And to a certain degree, you get, again, this is where you get into a little bit of a balance that like, I don't necessarily want that to be zero because that means we're getting in everything and just paying it immediately, which also isn't necessarily correct. Um, But again, same on the uh, accounts receivable side, you know, what percentage of the ledger is more than 90 days old? Is that more or less than it was last month, the month before, the month before? Are we getting better? Are we getting worse? Um, we had a couple around like, you know, total um, age creditors and total age debtors. Um, one on there that's just like the daily cash balance. So one of the like super simple controls that um, we used to have at a prior company was, um, it was my job first, you know, 9am every morning was to log on onto the online bank and just text the MD what the bank balance was. Dead simple report. You don't need to complicate any more than that. But he, he has that, you know, in his pocket by 9.05 every morning. And he's got a good idea of where it's at. And if Which is exactly already, what you were talking about earlier, right? Uh, exactly. About this sort of don't abdicate. Exactly. And you've, you've referred to EOS a couple of times. That, that, that's <clears> actually <throat> super interesting. If you're happy to take us around that that EOS, again, entrepreneurial operating system for those that aren't familiar with it, and, and the, the model is illustrated in a wheel, um, vision, people, data, issues, process, traction. You've alluded to the data scorecard there. It'd be awesome just to hear you kind of riff on those those key components and how the finance function interacts there. I suppose in the company, in the leadership team more broadly, and then and then running like their team if they have one. Um, I think people will get a ton of value out of that because it it sounds like the the fact you keep referring back to it is like this is probably the way that a relatively junior finance person that's just been catapulted into a startup and leading finance um, can can do a good job notwithstanding the lack of experience because that's exactly the role eos plays for the average first-time founder across all functions right it's like you paint by numbers and it just brings some degree of greatness out of you yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) yeah i'm um i'll talk through the sort of different um like i said the spokes on the eos wheel and obviously um i know eos is a, a subject pretty close to your heart um likewise so the sme that i was um finance director of for a couple of years we implemented eos um probably about six months after I joined. Um, and then, so we were kind of self-implementing for about 12 months and then hired an implementer for the next 12 months. And it was uh, transformational. It really, really, um, yeah, there's no better word for it, transformed the the trajectory of that business in the best possible way. And um, awesome. I've since moved on from that business, but it continues to go from strength to strength in my absence, which is fantastic to see. Um, so yeah, if I think about the, the sort of six, EOS components. So firstly on vision. Um, so again, uh, for the benefit of the audience who maybe aren't as familiar with EOS, part of the vision is um, saying, you know, as a company, what's our, you know, big 10 year vision? 
And then as part of, okay, if that's the 10-year vision, what's the three-year target? So where do we want to be in three years to be well on the way to achieving that 10-year vision? And the 10-year vision can be, you know, industry-leading, best-in-class vertical SaaS for this particular market. Um, so it can be it can be a little um, looser. But by the time you get down to, say, the three-year vision, EOS does push you to a certain degree to be quite um, concrete about what that looks like. You know, how many people is that? What kind of revenue are we doing? What does the office look like? Um, and what does the P&L look like? Which is where we get into that kind of budgeting and forecasting thing. So if you're trying to set a concrete three-year vision of want to be this many heads, this revenue number, this profit number, uh, or we want to raise this much in funding, well, like, is that anywhere nearly remotely realistic? Um, and you don't want it to be too realistic because it should be an aspirational target, but also like it needs to be you know within the realms of possibility. You know, you can't say we're, we're 1 million now and in three years we want to be uh, 100 million um, making 99 million profit because we're only going to hire three more people. We're like, well, that's, that's a bit unrealistic. And so <laughs> we've got to come up with a, a somewhat meaningful figure. Um, and then off the back of that three-year vision, okay, what's the one-year plan? Which um, nicely maps to a lot of the stuff we see in um, what really good FP&A, so financial planning and analysis, is what my role is now. A big part of that is getting the uh, the board and the exec team, the leadership team to align on, you know, this is our long-term financial plan. And off the back of that, this is what we're going to do in the next 12 months, which traditionally you call the budget. Um, so it maps really nicely to EOS. So you've got to have an idea of where you want to get to in three or five years to inform where you want to be in the next year, to then inform where you want to be in the next 90 days and how you're tracking against that. So that, um, you know, vision and goal setting exercise in EOS maps really nicely onto you know, what's really good financial planning, long-term financial target, short-term financial target, tracking against that and making sure we're um, we're moving towards that. Well, you, you know, it's interesting. When I start, when I first subscribed to the Secret CFO, new, C, uh, CFO newsletter was when um, he did the, the FP&A series. I think it was one of the first series, actually. And it was really insightful <laughs> because it's not like I, I didn't know I had any passion for FP&A, but because I'm so passionate about the entrepreneurial operating system, I'm really passionate about seeing visions actually delivered. And right. of course, seeing a vision actually delivered means it, has, it sort of has to be realistic to begin with. And then you have to execute with discipline and accountability. Yep. But I see the world in pictures and words, not really sure. in numbers. I'm not a wildly logical person. And it took me quite a lot of cycles to you know setting bad rocks setting visions that then turned out to be undeliverable to get to a place where I, I was more able to do it and actually the only the breakthrough for me was when I stopped advocating finance and started delegating it properly where we had to set recurring monthly meetings for our whole leadership team it's actually after our CFO left to um to go line by line through the PL and our management accounts to make sure that nobody didn't understand a single line or tab of it, which I, I'm ashamed to kind of admit, but it was it was critical for us in really understanding our numbers, which then meant we really understood our operating initiatives, which then only then did we really understand our our vision. We could have saved years and a tremendous amount of pain had we taken a kind of finance first perspective to vision setting right. uh, 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 earlier on. So yeah, it's interesting what you're talking about. It really resonates with me. Yeah, because I mean, um, you know, ultimately. The, you know, the two things you've got as a company are, you know, people and money and the people cost money. So ultimately what you have is some money and we're going to spend <laughs> it on things that will hopefully generate more money in the future. Um, so how you choose to deploy that money is ultimately like the, you know, key decisive thing in how the company grows and what the company trajectory looks like. So having that 
really close link between, okay, where do we want to get to? Okay, what is that going to require in terms of resources, in terms of people, in terms of investment? Um, and are we actually doing that? And are we doing a bunch of other stuff that is, you know, doesn't need to be done to keep the company going, doesn't need to be done to keep the lights on, isn't attracting any additional revenue, isn't saving us money, isn't reducing risk in any way? Or like, what the hell are we doing with it then? Like, get rid of it. And you can only really do that by, like you said, being really, really close to the numbers. It's so true. And actually, so that takes on to the next couple of components, people and data. And we can almost deal them together because, of course, in people, it's, as you said earlier, making sure you've got the right people in the right seat. And then in data, we want to have a scorecard that gives us an absolute pulse on the business at leadership team level, then every team. And of course, ideally, we have every employer with a number, a measurable. Um, Do you want to talk from a finance perspective about I put slightly putting words in your mouth, but I'm assuming a great finance leader kind of knows what good looks like from a numerical output perspective for each of the people that are on the accountability chart. Yeah. Fault. And uh, I think that's fair. And obviously as a, as a finance person and particularly in an SME environment, the, the data side is like the one closest to my heart, but it's also the one that is the most likely to sit with, you know, the FD or the CFO or the controller. Um, obviously like the bigger the organization you get, the more likely you are to have, you know, protect your engineering team or an MI team or, um, you know, a whole army of like business analysts churning out PowerPoints and Tableau dashboards and that kind of stuff that happens at a certain scale in an SME. Um, the finance person is almost always the, or the finance team and a couple of people in the finance team are often some of the most, you know, um, number literate people or data savvy people in the organization so a lot of that data work tends to fall to the finance function again not always um and that's not a given and like to your point about what's a good or a bad finance function like if a finance person is uncomfortable taking on that data role it's not a great sign um but certainly obviously in the like sme where um uh, where we implemented eos the design and production of the scorecard uh, at least initially kind of fell to me and then to a, a different spoke on the wheel, I ended up writing a process and gave it to someone else. Uh, but defining the you know the quality of the data sources, what are the metrics we want to track, what are the the numbers that are you know actually going to move the needle on this business, um, is where the combo of a finance person's kind of um, you know data savvy plus the you know the commercial awareness and the commercial nous, uh, understanding the business model, understanding the market, understanding the drivers of you know that business growth come in. In, in in your career, what, are there any um, areas and measurables that you felt least comfortable with sort of earlier on? Like, so for me, for example, I was always pretty comfortable with sales and marketing. It took me time to get to a place where I had a strong point of view on, pro- on, on product engineering measurables um, and actually some finance measurables other than like amount of cash in the bank and right. runway drop dead date. What what about you? Did you did you just like come out the womb with a strong point of view across the whole business and what measurables they should have, or have you found that you you know that that you've had to develop that awareness and confidence as well? Um, no, I think I came out of the womb with it fully formed. I knew it. All. <laughs> um, yeah, certainly. Like obviously, um, like from very early in my career, and frankly even before that, just got a bit of a nerd. Um, I was always pretty hot on the finance stuff, so you know balance sheet ratios, uh, margin percentages all that kind of stuff uh free cash flow ebitda um so that's all like relatively straightforward and again if you've got either a reasonable bookkeeper accountant or you know fractional cfo a lot of that um you are probably getting already or you already know about um or if you're not you should be 
Um, I think certainly, like you say, some of the more, I was going to say operational metrics, but again, that that applies more to certain kind of business models than others. But particularly in, you know, a, a SaaS company, things like, um, you know, product testing velocity or speed of engineering development and that kind of stuff, to a certain degree, um, are slightly harder to pin down as to, you know, what exactly that number is. Um and without what, what, a, what would be your recommendation, Andrew, for somebody that is used to being an expert, they don't have a strong point of view yet on one of those areas, but it clearly is critical for the business, right? If you're going to serve as a leader in it to like yeah, push through, the, like what, guess, just, um, just push, push through the discomfort until you do get a point of view? Kind of, yeah. Um, like firstly, you know, particularly if it's like product or software engineering, um, I'm assuming if you as the founder don't have that strong background, then you've got a functional leader who does have that strong background. And so I would be pushing them to tell me what good metrics are and what good looks like. And then I'd probably be going out to my network to kind of sense check that and going, does anyone know a you know good um, you know product manager that I can speak to? Yeah, my you know my product director saying this, this, and this. Does that kind of make sense? Oh yeah, yeah. No, that maps to you know what I saw at um you know uber and facebook and all that kind of stuff when i was oh good yeah good uh and then go back to the you know product director and go yeah yeah like your plan all makes sense thanks um, i'll give i'll give you a good worked example i am um, for a long time in yapster we didn't collect user satisfaction scores because there was a bunch of sort of semi-intellectual navel gazing within our team about about the 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 accuracy of MPS and how it fluctuates based on you know what day of the week it is and right. when you last had some like uncontrolled outage or whatever right like and what happened is it meant that while we were pondering what the right measurable was for user satisfaction we just didn't have any yeah. I was I was out talking to customers and users all the time and I could feel that like we needed to do better right but better wasn't really defined. There was no baseline. And actually it, it only took us a couple of weeks to just put a simple capture in the platform that then presented every, on, I don't know, a month after first login and then every right. six months thereafter until they left their company and therefore left the platform. Right. And it became incredibly useful because it was baseline and you could see it by customer and you could see it going up and down trends over time. And the lesson for me was not to get too clever. Um, mm-hmm. And to not allow subject matter experts to kind of fob me off with all of the complexity between the different choices that they could make to legitimize not making, not making any. And, yeah, yeah. and it was a real lesson for me that I had to form a point of view if I wanted to sit in the big seat. This sounds like the, so what I'm picturing in my head right now, this is like the KPI equivalent of like the midwit meme. So like on the left, <laughs> yeah. you've got like, just track NPS. And then someone's like, no, NPS, you know, doesn't capture this, this, and this. And like, it's not as accurate. And then the, you know, the ninja on the right is just, just track NPS. Um, yeah. So- I mean, if, because if people really hate you, they're going to press one, like we fucking hate you. Like, you know, if they think you're awesome, they might press five or they might not. But you know what? Knowing how many people press one, pretty fucking valuable. It turns out if you're the one going out and trying to get that customer to stick with you or find ways to alleviate the pain you know, that some users are experiencing. Yeah, exactly. yeah you're totally right. I think um, <laughs> like that there are probably exceptions to this rule, but I would say that a, you know, a, not a bad metric, but uh, an imperfect metric is still better than no metric at all. You know, if you're flying a, a plane in the clouds and you've got no controls whatsoever, or you've got one that says, you know, your compass direction, but it's five degrees off or whatever, like still better than nothing. It gives you at least some level of insight into what's going on. Uh, and again, like with um, 
whether it's you know your your metric scorecard or you've got a bunch of Tableau dashboard set up or some um, specific reporting coming out of whatever tooling you've created, like it's not fixed in stone. It doesn't have to be like that forever. You can iterate and iterate and iterate. Like our um, say the business we um, we put EOS into was a, like a fairly simple like wholesale and distribution business. Like we buy stuff for a price and we sell it for hopefully more than that price. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, it sits in the warehouse. Like it's not a complex business. Um, but our scorecard went through like a lot of iterations. Some metrics we put on there first time, and you know we kept them there forever. You know, weekly sales, daily cash balance went on the scorecard first time, never left, made perfect sense. And there's others that we iterated over time, and we put it on for a little bit, and then we were tracking it. And we we're going, actually, that's not really giving us what we need. But at least we tracked it for you know 90 days and figured out that like it's kind of useful, but not in these situations. Okay, stick it on the issues list. Is there a metric that looks better? How do we refine that? Is there, you know, ideally we'd be able to get this. So like in your example of like customer satisfaction, like ideally you'd have a direct brain link to every single Yapster user and you could see what the like blended average of satisfaction with the app was it, you know, in real time at any given moment. Obviously that's impossible. So how close to that can you get? And and you might start off, you know, if ideals like way, way over here on the right hand side of the spectrum and you're here. Well, like you can move a couple of steps closer to that and you might never get to that perfect nirvana, but you can at least come up with a metric for now that does some of the job. If at some point it stops serving a purpose or you need to refine it or you need to change it, you know, you're allowed to do that. Um, but yeah, certainly having, yeah, an imperfect metric is better than no metric. The only exception uh, to that would be where it's like massively misleading or completely wrong, um, which is where you might get into a debate about um, particular stuff. But for the most part, having something's better than nothing, for sure. Uh, yeah, I agreed, and you've you've alluded to issues, the the fourth component in, in EOS. I agree. You start somewhere, and then the level ten meeting you've also referred to is part of the traction component. So for those yep. that don't, level ten meeting is just a meeting uh, that that happens at the same time, same place every week, and follows a set agenda. It's called a level ten because most people rate their internal meetings like a three or four, i.e. a piss poor use of their time. When you follow this agenda that EOS prescribes, the goal is to get to a place where everyone that's participating rates it a 10. And Andrew, I found the same thing. Like you put things up on the scorecard. They were either wrong. You were, it, it was either a, the right metric and showing that we were not performing well enough and it would go on the issues list, or we'd be suspicious about the metric itself, which would go on the issues list. And then you'd, you'd get to the, the root cause. You try and solve it, maybe come up with a process fifth component um and you just keep tweaking those things until you got to got to the promised land right and you do that on a weekly and quarterly cadence in the in the, in the meeting pulse yeah, exactly. was there anything about aos you didn't like as a as a finance leader um it's one thing that um doesn't quite fit into the as well it's a couple of things that don't quite fit into the eos framework um the, like the main thing that comes to mind is that it's kind of it's somewhat natural for a finance person to want at least some element of that like traction process anyway, because, you know, my, my life and my career is run by that kind of monthly reporting and quarterly reporting cycle anyway. So it's kind of built deep within any accountant that, um, you know, month end is a thing. And at the end of every month, I'm going to have, you know, these eight tasks to do to produce the prior month's P&L and balance sheet. And then at the end of the month, I've got stuff to payroll or whatever. Um, right. So like a natural traction component for me in any business would be like a monthly P&L review. In -hmm. some businesses, you might call it an MBR, a monthly business review. In other companies, you might call it an MFR, a monthly finance review. You might call it the P&L review, whatever. But 
most finance people, if they've worked in any organization of any size, will kind of naturally have a tendency towards, at the very least, um, a kind of monthly cadence of meetings to review results, plan what to do next, and possibly a sort of either quarterly or half year or the very least annually cycle of planning and budgeting for next year. So like, what do we achieve this year? What do we want to achieve next year? Okay, how do we make sure we've got the resources in the plan to do that? So that that kind of traction stuff's kind of already built into you know the sort of finance mindset. But EOS doesn't really have a place to put in a meeting, for example, that is just me communicating. This was the PL last month, um, and this is the forecast for the rest of the year. It either means I need to create a totally separate meeting for the leadership, or I need to like shoehorn it into another section of the you know the, that weekly L10 that you mentioned. Um, but, you know, as you and I know, um, that weekly L10 has a very strict agenda and EOS recommends that you follow that strict agenda every single time to get in that kind of organizational habit, which makes perfect sense for the purposes of a weekly leadership team meeting. But then where do I, you know, where do I show everyone the P&L and the forecast and where do I talk people through, you know, you've overspent on this, this, or the cash flow is looking like this. You kind of have to carve that out separately. It doesn't quite fit in the framework, which, um, you know, annoyed me a little bit. Yeah, no, I can understand that. It's, it's interesting, actually. When um, when I did the the US implementer certification and training where you go really deep beyond what I learned doing it for Yapster, um, I had some of those same questions. And what really helped me was them saying that, that they recommend we don't take anything away from EOS because we might break it for a client and that wouldn't be fair on them bringing us in. But they're comfortable. The, the, the teaching is that it's fine for organizations to kind of add to EOS, like often through their sort of, and they often think about them as processes. So it might be a, a finance process, is, uh, which, which is what augments the, um, the meeting cadence. So you might have, I mean, in our business, we also did the, the, the monthly PL review. It was a separate meeting. Um, and it was, in, it, it was, it was totally critically important. And also EOS worldwide themselves have um have augmented their meeting pulses to reflect the fact that they're private equity owned now and they've therefore have board meetings there's a there's a blog if you, i'll send it to you actually i'll put it in the show notes as well because i think it's really interesting where it recognizes that eos was designed for organizations where the leadership team have sole authority to effectively do whatever they want so that the things that are decided in the quarterly gets done but of course in an eos back in a in a pe back business they do need to check that what they're planning on doing aligns with the majority owner i.e the pe fund right and there's this brilliant blog by mark o'donnell which explains how the process is supplemented to work well for companies with boards so for me andrew i agree with the frustration but i actually think that the eos teaching even though it's not laid out in traction kind of allows you to cover that by extending rather than changing EOS. Yeah, listen yeah to that me. makes listen sense. To me. Listen to me defending it as a card-carrying <laughs> yeah. EOS evangelist now. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So the only other thing I want to get your perspective on this is that um, uh, there have been times, for example, in that weekly uh, L10, that leadership team meeting, where um, so part of the EOS process, again, for the listeners, is uh, each of your leadership team members runs through their you know priorities for the 90 days, their goals, what they call their rocks. And they merely report whether something is on track or off track. Um, and there are times when I've heard someone say, yes, that is on track. And I know for a fact it is not. Um, you know, maybe it's something like a sales goal. And I'm looking at the sales forecast. And I go, well, you're not going to hit that. Or, that you know, there's some project. And I know that they haven't um, figured out how to, you know, interact it or implement, um, integrate it with, you know, the finance system, something like that. But someone comes to that meeting and says, yeah, that's on track. 
EOS, like for better, for want of a better phrase, EOS doesn't provide a way for you to hit that like bullshit button. Okay? Like, I don't believe you, or I want to pick up on that, unless I guess you kind of directly call it out in um, in the meeting. Um, and it likewise, I guess, doesn't really have any place for kind of progress updates, you know, just to keep the leadership team informed to say this is on track because A, B, and C have happened this week. Um, and again, whether that takes place in a separate meeting or a progress update email. Like you say, you can add to it. Um, it was just like a couple of like not teething problems, but you know, issues that we had um, when we were implementing. No, I, I, so I found the same thing in Yapster. Um, we supplemented the rock setting process. So in EOS Pure, it says just set smart rocks. Right. But we just took the definition of smart and said we like we need rocks to be scoped in such a way that we can understand where someone is in their kind of rock plan right so our rock setting was done pure so we just just set something that everyone agreed was smart but the first phase of doing doing their rock which then went to the to, to the to do's for those that are listening that's like you to, to do is something you can get done in a week a rock is something you get done in 90 days quarter to quarter and the first to do that people took was to scope their rock in such a way that it could be illustrated in a hill chart. Hill chart is going up to the top of the hill is figuring things out, coming down the other side of the hill is making things happen. It comes from um, base camp. I find it re- it's a really good visualization of where someone is in a complex project. And so then that enabled us, because I found the same thing. Someone would say on track, I'm thinking, I think you're off track. You need an integrator willing to call bullshit. And they can't really call bullshit if they can't see where in a rock deliverable someone someone is right so i i agree so for me that was just that was just supplementing the process and i actually found the same thing for get it um and capability on the people analyzer so the people component you you referred to earlier we found when just saying someone does or doesn't get it without a granular definition of what getting it means was actually really difficult to have performance-related conversations, quite difficult to put someone on a pip if you couldn't be specific about what what get it means. And so, again, we just extended the process. We didn't think it really took anything away from EOS. We just had role definitions where there were kind of three bands for for get it across the the relevant role attributes, and we just scored people quarterly numerically for that. So I, I agree. I think for the average SMB, like particularly at the really unsophisticated end, the founder just kind of knows and their hunch is, is, is okay. Yeah, For yeah. more analytical tech businesses, investor back businesses, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Rock scorecard. A lot of these areas actually need some, some thought and documentation underpinning them. Yeah. And um, I um, add to that, your, your point about the gets it, wants it and has the capability, like gets it definitely needs fleshing out as does, I think like capability or, well, I can't remember whether EOS calls it capability or capacity. But I always call it capability because I think it's a better, um, better. Yeah, they call it, it they is. they call it capacity, capacity. But I know what you mean. So I was thinking mm. about capacity as like a well, the time to do it, but not like the ability, which is where I can't like capability. Um, but certainly, like again, if I just think about it in um, simple kind of finance terms, um, you tend to in a lot of finance function. Obviously, you've got like different job levels, but often they're denoted by someone's title as well. So you might have someone who is a management accountant, by which they mean they've qualified, they've passed all their exams, they've done this, this, and this. But And um, that, you know, brings with it a certain level of pay and seniority because that's also what's expected in the market. And below that, you might have something like assistant management accountant or account assistant or something, um, which is someone who uh, either isn't qualified or is, you know, studying to become qualified. Um, so it's a really simple criteria that you can put in place to say, you know, that level or like 
by capacity or capability for this specific job we mean these five things and for this job you know we denote that at a slightly different level and we say capability means these criteria and again that, that might be different um cross-functionally but again if you think about say um a sales function you know what is um uh this uh, you know biz dev rep look like compared to an account manager compared to a senior account manager compared to a head of sales um you know, someone's got to be comfortable writing really good cold emails and cold calling and getting the leads in. Someone's got to be comfortable, you know, picking up that lead and driving that sales discussion forward and closing it. And then at the next level, someone's got to be capable of setting a sales strategy, setting a go-to-market strategy, um, you know, designing what that um, acquisition funnel looks like, talking through, you know, the value prop and all that kind of stuff, target market, um, marketing materials, um, just completely different capabilities, although they're still sales roles. They're just at different levels and different levels of experience, and therefore the capability required is different. And mapping those out for people firstly makes it super explicit what's expected of them now, and also gives them a clear path to like promotion um, and advancement, which most people are really grateful for. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So I like capacity, but I don't disagree with your analysis. So for me, we would just we just we. Um we encompassed a lot of that in, in get it, but like we just had kind of your natural disposition, you're almost your genetic encoding and then also your acquired attributes, but, but capacity covers some of that as well. But the reason I like capacity is in a, like just life happens, shit happens and people's capacity goes up and down sometimes. Right. Like some of it is a one way ex- escalator that comes with experience But for example, my wife just under two years ago had our first child, right? She's a marketing director in a technology company uh, and was at a startup. And so she rushed back from maternity because like we needed her to. The startup she was at was at Yapster pre-acquisition and then she she, um, got a job at another place. And she'd be the first to say that she rushed back and her capacity was massively lower because she came back too soon. She's brilliant. We really needed her. But like it was just different. So like it was different because she wasn't sleeping and, but also now had this, this new priority, whereas previously just the job had been number priority one, one, two and three, and now wasn't. So it kind of redefined how she did the, the role and how we'd shaped the role previously. And it was really nice to be able to say, we well, like, you still get it. You still want it. And your capacity, your capacity has been temporarily reduced. What like quite rightly, while you've you know, bringing a new little human human being into the world. Right. We had someone else who's um, who had a, a sick parent, for example, in a completely different role. And so again, you'd see some some capacity drop. But as a leadership team that cared about each other, you would need to have an open and honest conversation around whether the business could could carry on with just that one person in seat with their diminished capacity. Or if we now had an issue that needed to be resolved with some extra cover for that person. Um, and so I found that really helpful. And I'm not sure how, like, it's those things are really awkward to talk about, right? One of the great yeah. things about EOS is it makes you have awkward conversations exactly. across, in, lots, in lots of places. And, uh, <laughs> and, like, I don't want people to jump to the conclusion that, like, you know, Rob's wife still got what the role was, still wanted it, uh, but didn't have the capacity to do it. So, you know, she's out. We need to hire a new marketing director. It's <laughs> no, no, like, no. what's the, okay, given given that um, whole, you know, is that, A, something we just live with for six months? And if so, what's the knock-on impact? And are we all okay with that? Fine. Or what um, uh, additional resource do we need to put in place? Or what do we need to move around? Or what else do other members of the leadership team need to pick up? Um 
so yeah, like I say, EOS in in many ways has the um, the kind of toolkit and provides the framework to bring to the forefront these, like I say, often somewhat awkward conversations, um, which are almost always the most important. You know, however awkward you feel the conversation is, probably correlates quite well to how important it is to the business. Yeah, uh, agreed. Thank you for linking the finance pyramid to your experience in EOS because I do think that good finance people are so critical in in all businesses clearly but in in startups and particularly in kind of subscale founder-led businesses where we're now in this quite difficult environment they're completely critical and when they lean on EOS I feel like it it gives finance people a real unfair advantage in a way to step into like true general leadership I and mean, business the language of businesses numbers clearly and I think it creates a really nice bridge for uh, numbers people to actually lead organisations. Yeah, I completely more effectively. agree. And, and it's also one of the um, one of the areas where, firstly, like not again, not to um, stereotype finance people too much, but like a lot of founder CEO types tend to come either from a product background, uh, software engineering background, or kind of sales and marketing. Um, very few, you know, hardcore um, SaaS founders are probably going to come from you know a management accountant role at an SME um which is fine uh, but it also means as a as a kind of you know startup SaaS CEO or founder uh, it's unlikely you are going to have much experience in finance and it's also something that to certainly just kind of requires time and experience to understand it you know it, it takes three years to be or in some cases a couple of years um to like become a qualified accountant to get chartered to know what you're talking about um and a lot of the, you know the good practices you see are really just a function of having a few years experience at a much bigger company and then figuring out okay what's the scaled down version of this that this you know 10 person startup needs or what's the slightly more scaled up version that a 30 person company and a 50 person company 100 person company needs um so it, it's it's just the kind of experience that's quite difficult and quite uncommon for a founder to have um so like i say it's it's really important to um, be able to know what good looks like to be able to hire in either on a you know an interim fractional basis or permanently like that support and then if you get that really really strong finance support just give you the confidence to you know drive forward when you've got confidence around the numbers you know how much you can afford to like invest in growth or invest in sales and marketing you know what the you know short medium and long-term future can look like if you hit those goals so it's um Obviously, I'm slightly biased, but I think that that's where finance has a really, really strong role to play in startup world, and in particular, um, you know, with EOS as well, because EOS just puts all that um, tooling alongside it that allows finance to play quite a big role. Yeah, I mean, I love seeing finance people move into that integrator position. I, yeah. I, I just think that if you're a financially literate integrator, you really can take on the world, and if you're a mad dreaming visionary having that that person that you're riding shotgun with that, that is operationally disciplined willing to have hard conversations but can really understand how your dreams get expressed in in operational initiatives and measurables yep. it's just a game changer exactly and like going right back to the start of the conversation like what does a really good finance person look like the you know the best of the best secrecy if i was a great example of this can play at both ends of that spectrum so they can make sure you know you've got the right control environment so you're not playing paying dodgy invoices or you know your banking set them right and then it can also say okay what's the strategy what's the long-term vision what's the right you know go to market how do we position ourselves correctly 
and being able to play out both ends of that pyramid and all up and down that pyramid is what a really, really good finance person looks like. And like I said, they're such an asset when you find them. Amazing. Andrew, thank you so much for doing this. I'm going to link your Twitter or X um, account <laughs> in the notes and your LinkedIn profile. Are you happy for people to reach out to you if, they, if they're yeah, interested? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm on Twitter or X as at Andrew G. Lynch. Um, find me on LinkedIn, Andrew Lynch. Um, that's about it. Oh, uh, andrewlynch.net if you want to check out the blog or anything like that. It's all good. And read your random deep dives into these company financials that you just like yes. to look at for the weekends. Yeah, I've touched on that very briefly. I wrote sort of, I guess the way I'm thinking about it now is like season one of a newsletter because I wrote like eight, eight editions in about eight weeks last summer and then got completely burnt out. So I'm thinking about when <laughs> like next season is. Um, but yeah, if you want to go to netincome.co, uh, you can read my newsletter and deep dives on, you know, fascinating company financials, whether that's Centre Parks, um, some ludicrously profitable software company up in Edinburgh. I um, love that one. That one was good. That one was good. Um, what else did I do? Oh, the um portaloo rental guy from essex um, and a, a <laughs> couple of others people. in there in the mix but yeah check it out netincome.co brilliant i'll put all those links in Andrew, thank you so much looking forward to seeing you again pleasure thanks rob